This episode of Value Hive is brought to you by Tegas. If you enjoy listening to Value Hive, you'll love the Tegas product. Tegas has the world's largest collection of instantly available expert interviews on all the public and private companies that you care about. All you have to do is log in. So if you're tired of high cost and time consuming expert research calls, give Tegas a try and see for yourself why many of the most trusted and well-respected hedge funds, mutual funds, family offices, allocators, and VCs rely on Tegas to scale their expert research and to get the critical information they need faster than ever. You can sign up for a free trial at tegas.co forward slash value hive. That's tegas.co forward slash value hive. And as a personal anecdote, I use Tegas literally every single day. It's the first resource I use when I start researching uh, a new investment, and it's one of the last things I do uh, before I finish up rounding out my research, and I know you'll love it as much as I do. Before we dive into today's conversation, I want to talk to you about MIT Investment Management Company, also known as Matimco, the investment office of MIT. Each year, Matimco invests with a handful of new emerging managers who it believes can earn exceptional long-term returns in support of MIT's mission. In order to help the emerging manager community more broadly, they created EmergingManagers.org, a website for emerging manager stock pickers. For those looking to start a stock picking fund or those just looking to learn about how others have done it, I highly recommend this site. You'll find essays and interviews by successful emerging managers, service providers used by MIT's own fund managers, essays Matimco has written for emerging stock pickers, and more. Matimco also occasionally and opportunistically hires new members for their investment team. To view the job description, please visit matimco.org slash global dash investor. That's M-I-T-I-M-C-O dot O-R-G slash global dash investor. The Matimco team spends their time learning about great businesses and investments, working with exceptional investors around the world in order to support generations of MIT innovators. Peter, this is the life sciences deep dive part two. It's a a long-winded way of uh, saying thanks for coming back on the podcast. We got really awesome feedback from our first conversation about life sciences. And I don't know if it was because life sciences was kind of in the doldrums and everything was super cheap. Not much changed from the cheapness side, I guess. But there's just some really interesting developments that have taken place since our first conversation. So um, if... If you're listening and you haven't listened to the first part, uh, I suggest you pause this and then go listen to our first crash course on life sciences. Um, Peter did an excellent uh, job explaining that. So we'll dive right in here in this in the second part, and we'll start with this first question: like, what's changed since we first chatted in 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 February? Yeah, for sure. Uh, great to be back. Um, I think uh, the biggest thing that just changed since our first conversation was the first that conversation was sort of like the first initial cleansing moment uh and now you're kind of you know later much later in the year things have drawn down so much that it's sort of made the biotech sector a bit more uh anti-fragile is probably the word i would use (laughs) if i was to use like a terminology from talib um you know, you've had a couple of companies that had some trouble in funding, had layoffs, had, um, you know, even wound up or bankrupt. And that generally obviously is is not good for, you know, people's morale and everything, but it does as a whole make the sector a bit more resilient. Um, and you're starting to see a couple of major approvals come through. And I think companies with real science are starting to show their, their wings. 
Um, but I would say the biggest thing that I'm excited about is the first the first level in February was this massive peak peak pessimism, if we want to generalize it as as what we did like last uh, podcast. Now you're getting to a point where like okay, like that's kind of in the rear view mirror. We're starting to see some resiliency here of some of these companies, and now there might be some some more bankruptcies or companies that fold in biotech, but you might also see a far more uh, M&A activity. And we're already starting to see some M&A this like, last few months. So I think just in, in general, it's just been a bit more resilient. And so what that looks like, I guess, to use an analogy is when farmers uh, burn kind of either their crops or burn the grass to create new growth underneath Mm -hmm. uh, where where you kind of need that death to 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 bring forth kind of the new new life underneath where where specifically are you seeing that and do you have any examples of you know say like hey these are a few bankruptcies that to me look like the fires burning for you know other legitimate you know kind of contenders coming up I, I think what's happened is you've just seen um, uh, acquisitions happen like Eli Lilly acquired Acupos. Acupos, I don't remember, I can't pronounce these names sometimes. Um, which is they have a gene therapy, it's a gene therapy platform. I know like the, the two biggest, the three biggest areas are cell and gene therapy, cancer vaccines, um, and cancer immunotherapies. Like those are the three ones that are coming out. And so companies are kind of like running around trying to acquire or at least in, in, you know enhance their pipelines as best they can. So I think. I think you're just starting to see some great science go through. Um, like recently, like Unicure recently, um, it got approved for the most expensive gene therapy in the world, uh, $3.5 million drug for uh, hemophilia. You know, it's the first ever gene therapy for that treatment. Um, and it will, I think Forbes today came out with an article is like, how are payers, how will, how will this impact payers? Right. That's another elephant that we haven't really talked about in the life science sector is how will all these new science um, indications, therapies impact two groups, generics and payers insurance? I don't know the answer to that hmm. just yet. And the reason for that is, especially for gene therapy, um, the FDA requires significant amount of reporting, like talks, reports, patient follow-ups, like five years, 10 years down the line. Is a generic manufacturer going to do that? Like, I don't really know the answer to that. And uh, it's just very, there, there's, there's, there's different kinds of reporting. There's like drug reporting, and then there's administration reporting, like how much of the drug was sort of flow through that particular body part, like how much did it spread? You know, what was the administration like? Just data collection, data management, data analysis. Um, so that it is all to say that I think it's made the, the, the weakness in February to today to, to have your analogy has um, expedited M&A and approvals, I think. And I think the ones that, have, that were weak or that weren't funded by a tremendously strong science are now by the wayside. You know, maybe it frees up the FDA to look a bit closer at these other indications. And it allows the FDA to also... Uh, take these approvals far more seriously. It sets precedence. And I think that's where the big benefit is going uh, in the future, where the FDA will say, look, you know, the, the, 
it's been a rough go for biotech. Mm -hmm. We have some really key drugs that have been approved. I'm not saying it has to look like this, but it sure should smell, sound like a duck, quack like a duck, and look like mm -hmm. a duck in order for us to sort of get interested in approving. Um, so I think that's the benefit that's come out of all this. There's a ton of negative enterprise value companies still scattered throughout the biotech landscape. Mm -hmm. um, and with all this M&A going on, one question I have is how much of these negative EVs, if if they do get acquired, how much how much of that goes towards existing biotech companies, we'll call them, like the actual players, like the Lilies and the Novo Nordisks and all that, uh, versus some sort of PE roll-up style, um, almost like, you know, like a uh, Vista for software. If, if, if there's any type of player in the biotech space that would take advantage of it or is taking advantage of these negative EV plays. It's interesting you say that. Um... I've never heard of that. I think it's a, that's a dangerous game to play. Um, you'd have to have some pretty specific specialty in that area. But in May, where like where the biotech sector hit a hit a, I would say let's say it, let's call it a let's call it a short term bottom because mm -hmm. that's where the XBI was at like sixty five bucks or whatever. You had I think forty percent at or fifty percent of the index had negative enterprise value. Um, and I was just, I was telling my partner, I'm like, just buy every phase three, like every phase three candidate with at least five years of cash, just buy a basket and just see where it is. <laughs> Probably should have done that, but I didn't do that. But that's kind of, um, that's kind of where the mentality is right now, where, you know, the, the, the more negative these enterprise values get. Yeah. I mean, what one could do is yeah, theoretically go through all these phase three candidates and see where they are, what their cash burn is, and sort of figure out what is the most promising of actually getting approved and effectively try to roll them up. But you'd be competing against the coffers of big pharma as well. And they have a pretty, these companies are, they have good databases of like who's who and who's real. So I don't know if it would be a good idea. Um, but yeah, like in May, I, I, I think that wasn't a bad, like generally that's not a bad sort of concept. Um, but I don't see M and A roll ups really happening um, in this space. Uh, just I think big pharma has got such a good stranglehold on the area. So, and I also wonder how much of that is just the diversity of of businesses and therapies and objectives yeah. for each of these companies. Like with software, there's almost this general umbrella that if you understand the umbrella. Like, yes, there are different points throughout the umbrella, but you can kind of get the big picture right and fit these other B2B SaaS plays into it because you understand B2B SaaS. But in a biotech roll-up, it's almost like, okay, if you understand you know, how to treat hemophilia, that doesn't necessarily give you an advantage in understanding this like picks and shovels play for diabetes over here. And yeah, there, yeah, yeah. there's like no real synergies between the two disciplines, unless you somehow create like a theme, like, Hey, we're only going to go in picks and shovels. And then you identify those. But you know, even then like the opportunity sets probably a lot smaller and you're not getting the bargain prices because everybody knows picks and shovels are great businesses. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's, I don't know how much operating leverage there is in terms of actually rolling up or quote unquote, like theoretically rolling up a bunch of different candidates. Like they're very specialized. They're very regulated. It's just a different monster, you know, um, yeah, I, I don't see how that's 
like I mean, there's royalty pharma, which sort of I guess rolls up royalty streams of drugs mm -hmm. uh, that are already on the market. Um, you know, I, the company hasn't done that well, but like there are companies yeah, like that are that stock's been cheap for the last yeah. eight years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and you know, generics are kind of in that business. I mean, they don't they just roll up a bunch of off patent drugs to manufacture. I mean, it's I, I don't know if it's the best uh way to do it um and it, you need to have a pretty specific group who understands every single therapy and mm -hmm. i just i would just leave it to the big <laughs> yeah well i mean you bring up you bring up a good point too which is and 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 you mentioned this earlier about like with these new drugs whether it's generics or, or kind of these other specialty compounds the amount of data and the amount of follow-up and surveys and studies and all of this Think of it as like just these giant hurdles to get these drugs approved and get them commercialized. All of that paints the picture for what you kind of pitched as the golden age of of big pharma. And I know big pharma has like this very negative connotation. And sometimes I jokingly use like, "Oh, big pharma told you to do that" in 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 certain contexts. But from an investment standpoint, you really can start to piece together a puzzle where the barriers to delivery or commercialization or getting from needle into a patient is so high that there's no chance for the smaller players to compete, which leads right into this idea of the golden age of big pharma. So why don't you take that and, 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 and kind of run with that thesis for a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I think, uh, I think what's important to realize is there's a couple companies. Um, so all the big players, I'm going to call them the big seven, they're all they're all really uh, investing heavily in their pipelines. Um, I would say the strongest pipelines right now, like if you were to say, what could potentially match what Lilly has done, right? Mm -hmm. In terms of like blockbusters, uh, AstraZeneca is up there. Um, I would say that Novartis has some really good late stage stuff, but they're also dealing with Sandoz, which is their generic business. They want to sell it. They're dealing with other things as well. Um, uh, bio and tech, uh, which BNTX, which they're the guys who help manufacture the COVID vaccine with uh, Pfizer. Mm -hmm. uh, those guys have plowed so much money. Like they literally went from COVID to 19 oncology drugs in the pipe. And wow. they have an incredible... So the, one of the biggest benefits of COVID was this unique way to manufacture it. And they kind of have the, I guess, I guess like the, the process to do that. And so um, this is like another area in the sort of like the biological field where they're using, you know, like bioinformatics, they're getting patient data to, and, and understanding the DNA, understanding the genetic makeup to actually make a personalized you know, vaccine for that patient, and they can do it under six weeks manufacture, and they're trying to get it down to four weeks. Wow! And that's very hard to replicate. Um, and so they're taking that process that which did for COVID was mRNA, and they're using it for oncology, like cervical cancer, neck cancer, head cancer, whatever. Um, so, like again, like how how does a generic compete with that? Like I don't know when these things get off patent, how are they going to do that? Right? Because like you have to analyze patient data, you have to identify the unique mutations caused by the cancer, is to determine which genetic instruction should produce an immune, immune response sufficient to effectively attack these cells. Then you have to engineer the mRNA and then you have to like start 
creating a personalized cancer vaccine and then actually go and do that in six weeks. And their stage is pretty, their pipeline is very robust. It's just not late stage enough. That's the problem mm -hmm. with Biontechnic. Uh, Novartis and AstraZeneca have the sort of like most latest stage and the most potential for blockbuster, I would say. Like, I'm, like AstraZeneca has, a, I hate pronouncing these drug names, it's like Tegriso, which is lung cancer. It's a potential mm -hmm. major blockbuster. And the strategy with those two is here are these unmet needs, like a rare disease, unmet needs, you know, uh, and, and that creates incredibly high pricing power. You know, it's like the hemophilia example, right? There's only so many patients, and then that's three and a half million dollars drug, right? Or that um, AADC deficiency, which is effectively Parkinson's for for children. Um, but there's like five thousand patients, and each drug is like two hundred thousand um, dollars. So, like, I would say those two are the are the the best. I say the weakest is GSK has like major patent clips in twenty twenty eight and. I don't want to say they're in panic mode, <laughs> but uh, I don't know what what sort of where the next where the growth comes in the twenty thirties. Like mm. it's twenty twenty eight. It's like okay, like so our big HIV drug is kind of off patent. Bristol Myers has made ma major, major, major investments in creating blockbuster stuff and cancer immune therapies are a first mover, but they're they're facing some cliffs that that are coming up soon like they've shut out and they, they shut a lot of businesses they shut their diabetes business their wound care business their nutritional business their medical imaging business so the risk there is they become too much focused on uh cancer immune therapies um and they probably will get something i mean they, they have invested so much money into these areas but i would say yeah like it's astrogenica is sort of like the the one with the largest blockbuster potential, so to speak. Yeah, and you said the big seven. I think you mentioned three or four. Do you kind of have the complete list? I guess it's Lilly, AstraZeneca, um, Pfizer, yep. GSK, Novartis. Uh, you could probably throw a Novo there. Yeah. Uh, how many is that? <laughs> Merck. That's six. Yeah. Um, Merck seven. Yeah. So those are, I would say, are like the big, big, big ones. You know, and there's other ones that are. I mean, the second. And now there's like there's like the top tier. It's like here is these big six behemoths, you know, mm -hmm. the the hundred billion dollar plus, and then there's these like second tier, which are over thirty billion that have a shot at becoming a hundred plus, right? So I thought Alney Lamb was one, and then uh, Biontechni BNTX is a symbol is another. Um, there's one out of I think Denmark, Arginex, yeah, ARGX. I think is a symbol. It's like 22 billion. Uh, so there's a group of sort of okay, these are not quite the big six, but they got a good shot at them. At them. Um, but we always look at the big six because, just like anything that's super regulated, you're going to have the a Pareto distribution, mm -hmm. and usually it's going to be you know you got to follow the money from the big guys to see where it's going um so and when you look at these because i think that's kind of what's most interesting to someone like myself is okay like i know that these businesses like these monsters the top seven i know they're huge i know they're 100 plus billion and it's harder for me to kind of see okay how can how can this idea five to ten x over the next five to ten years if i'm trying to you know go for some sort of 
internal hurdle rate. Um, but what fascinates me is those is those. I mean, I don't even want to call them B players, but just from a from a size perspective, we'll call them you know JV players, where maybe they're in the twenty to thirty billion dollar range, but you think they can get to a hundred plus billion. Do you have any sort of similarities between like? Are there any similarities between, let's say, something like that uh, ARGX? Um, what is the name of that company called? Argan or Arginex? Like, Arginex, yeah. When you when you look at a company like Arginex, like what are the qualities or characteristics that you see specifically that go, you know what, like this might be the next Novo, this could be the next Lily? Walk us through some of those. Yeah, it's really it really depends on the pipeline. So you'd have to sort okay. of go through. So there's two things. There's the there's the, the 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 quantity in the pipeline and the quality of the pipeline. So like if you take BioNTech, uh, so they have proven method for mRNA. They have proven method for manufacturing, right? And they're going to apply that across 19 different programs. And across those different programs, you take a company like Arginex or whatever it is. You say, okay, like which ones are in phase three? Which ones have a high likelihood of approval? Which are unique related to it? the technology that they're currently using and then which one has blockbuster potential like Alilam has a uh, phase one hypertension uh based on their uh, rna technology so it's like okay well like if you can take a shot every day or when it once when once every year let's say to reduce your blood pressure like that's ah, great right um mm -hmm. it does a lifelong cure uh that, that's a blockbuster potential so it's really based on the pipeline. Um, it's hard to say anything other than that, right? Like what is unique about the pipeline, the quantity, the quality, and then the process? Like, is there something unique? Like Biotechnik has a unique way of manufacturing and, and creating those drugs based on the personalized nature of the medicine. Um, and you can also just look at which ones have been approved. So like Unicure, for example, I think there's, a, there's, there's your pharma companies and then there's a group of companies that are gene therapy that I think can do, can become large businesses like Unicure. I think, I don't remember what the market cap is, maybe three, three billion cure is, is the symbol Q U R E. Um, they, you know, they're, they're gene, they're just gene therapy. They had, they just got the hemophilia. Okay. Great. That's a win. It's in partnership with CSL bearing, which is a large, uh, again, not large, pharma company um but they have huntington's trial next year readout they do they also started or that's entering the clinic epilepsy right there's epilepsy is 3.5 million people so like these are large indications and these drugs are going to be very expensive so if you just do the math like where okay these guys have set a precedent for their for for winning now fda has them on their radar they're going to take a close look at their applications. I'm not saying that these drugs are going to get approved. I'm just saying that um, you can sort of start to see like where the snowball can get, can start to move pretty rapidly, right? Mm -hmm. If you have three drugs and the costs are in the hundreds of thousands, if not a million, like, like honestly, in Alzheimer's gene therapy, Parkinson's gene therapy, it's a million plus, and there's yeah. a million plus patients. So you can start to see where these can become, you know, from 3 billion to 20 billion, right? PTC therapeutics too. Um, they just got for Epstaza, which is AADC deficiency. It's a rare genetic disorder. Uh, it's devastating for children. 
Um, it's not, it's a rare disease. So it's a this billion dollar drug. Um, so you, you could start to see like, okay, you get a couple of those, these 1 billion, 2 billion, $3 billion gene therapy companies, they can easily become a 20, 30, 40 billion market cap. But again, it's just based on pipeline and the commercialization efforts. And um, like one of the big advantages of big pharma is they have massive distribution networks. Like once they get something yeah. approved, like they don't have to invest that much in terms of the distribution. So, and, yeah. and so does that distribution advantage, because there's, there's a company I'm looking at that's a smaller cap. So maybe I'll talk about it offline with you. But one of the, uh, one of the kind of ideas in my head is this, the distribution quality of this, of this business, which does something similar, allows it to, let's say, pay more for drugs or pay more for compounds, generics than some company with, uh, not as good distribution. And so, are you are you seeing that with these larger biotech companies where you know these we'll call them the big seven again their distribution is so good that they can pay let's just say round numbers they can pay a hundred million dollars for a drug that most people without that distribution system would be okay paying 50 million dollars for and they know that okay we're paying a higher price but our distribution is so good that we can actually leverage and we can, you know, juice so much more out of what we're paying through this distribution network. Um, it's an interesting question. Um, I would say that the it's hard to say. Like the the big the the, the big players, they're kind of the de facto way to commercialize a drug. And so sometimes you'll see smaller drug companies partner with a Novartis, partner mm -hmm. with a Merck, partner with a AstraZeneca to utilize their distribution network to distribute the drug. If you're a smaller player, um, sometimes you'll see like Merck has a very strong CDMO business, like uh, in Germany, where they make manufacture drug on behalf of smaller drug companies and they can distribute on behalf of drug companies. Um, there's just a tremendous amount of operating leverage there. Because uh, one of the biggest problems that smaller drug companies have is investing in the sales force. And like, do you do that? Like, that's a big question that people ask. Do you manufacture? the drug, like those are the two big questions in commercialization. Uh, and sometimes it's just easier to go distribute it with a partner, like, like a Novartis. Um, so, and like these guys spend a lot of money, not only uh, creating this massive network, but also maintaining it and optimizing it. So it might sometimes just easier for a small player to do that. Yeah. When I'm thinking about, the pipeline because one of the kind of themes that I'm picking up here is that pipelines really, really, really matter. And that might seem obvious, but the next kind of question that, that I have is, okay, if, 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 if pipelines really, really matter, how do you go about trying to value the pipelines? And the framework I'm using initially is okay. Like some sort of options type framework where each drug in the pipeline is basically this call option. Some might be really deep out of the money with low probabilities. Some might be in phase three. So closer to in the money. How do you, I mean, even, even if this is just like a philosophical exercise that you do in your head, how do you think about valuing the pipeline itself and, and kind of each drug in each trial? Um, I would say that, I mean, like the big, the best way is, I mean, it's not so different than sort of a quasi-discounted cash flow where you have, this is what the price of drug is going to be. Here's the total market, addressable market. Um, the, the, the harder 
part and like you know the, the margins are going to be in the 90 percent but the, the harder aspect is the probability of approval that's yeah. sort of like so you say okay if it's a phase two drug there's maybe like a 30 percent chance of it being approved and then you know the sort of revenue total addressable market that it could capture you know and then you just discount it back and you also have to figure out when the patent cliffs are you know like just because a drug is in a clinical trial today, like a patent is 21 years, that doesn't the patent might have been developed 10 years ago. So maybe mm -hmm. it's got three years left, four years, five years, six years, seven years. Um, so like that's another thing to calculate. It's really a function of the market, the, in, the indication, the price for the drug, the probability of approval, and then obviously the patent cliff. And then you kind of it's just then it's just a math exercise. Um, I the way I you know, to reduce risk, I, I always say like, you know, does the company that has these a pipeline, does it have a drug on the market, right? Has it gone through the ringer with the FDA? Because um, that creates a lot of learning, that creates a lot of intangible, um, you know, uh, I guess knowledge of going through that process, you know, because Sometimes you'll have a pipeline of 20 drugs, maybe, you know, one or two might have a clinical hold and then they have mm -hmm. to stay calm and go through it. And are they managing their cash balance well? And, you know, the problem with the smaller biotechs that haven't gone through that ringer is you're so, 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 so dependent on the science rather than doing a yeah. math exercise. And that creates binary events. And sometimes it doesn't work out. And sometimes it's not that the science isn't good. It's, also, just the, the clinical trial wasn't designed well. Like maybe in your mm -hmm. clinical trial, you wanted to administer 40 microliters of a particular drug, but really it should have been 120. And you should have done a fo patient follow-up 18 months, not 12. And so that's kind of why Charles Rivers is so crucial because they design these for companies, especially if you're doing a gene therapy where the costs are so high and a lot of times you're doing preclinical reporting and, you know, GLP reports, which are like good laboratory practice reports. Um, if you design your trial wrong and you technically failed your, mm. your, your, your trial and yep. that is very expensive and companies that have gone through that process where they do have an approved drug. Okay. They know how to set the parameters better. There's just a lot of intangible knowledge transfer that, mm -hmm gives an advantage to someone who's already got an approved drug to yeah. go do it again. And so that's why those, I don't, you know, if one were to go to the pharma landscape, that's why big pharma is typically seen as quote unquote, the safer play in a sense that not only do they have massive drug blockbuster drugs and such diversified businesses and pipelines, and even maybe generic businesses within that and other kinds of businesses, but they also, have been through that process and they know how that works. Um, and so like, yeah, I, I would say that the 20 billion and up are the ones, if I was to start out, that's where I would focus on because you get a sense of like how they're operationalized a current drug, how they've been through those trials, how they design the trials, and how big are the pipelines, where's the, the, you know, properly pricing is also another one too. Like they have that experience. Mm -hmm. So, it's easier when it's bigger. It's it's harder when it's smaller. When you look back, I mean, you've been investing in this space for a while. When you look back from where you started to where you are today, um, do you think that you've gotten more precise with 
gauging the probabilities of some of these drugs or do you think that the outcomes are so dispersed and 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 sometimes things are so random that you know maybe the best that you can do is 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 hope that you have enough margin of safety where you're not banking on your probabilities being right but you're banking on the fact that if my probabilities are so low and I still make money, I think I'll be okay. Cause I'm just trying to gauge like how one gauges their own personal improvement in trying to understand these pipelines and trying to discern these probabilities. Yeah. It's look, there's a lot of smart people in bio, bio FinTwit or bio, you know, the bio investing space and many are PhD MDs and, you know, even they get it wrong in terms of the data coming out of a trial it's hard it's hard to assess right and there's analysts that are really good too that do miss uh the probabilities they might they might be off um it's just what i've learned is don't underestimate the bigger the bigger companies who have a drug in that knowledge transfer because it does create a little bit of a different um a little bit of a different, I guess, moat, you can call it, where they can they can reduce the risk for the approval, for the trial design, and for the commercialization. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, when you're going down the risk curve to smaller companies, it's not just the science. It's, it's also, like, again, like the trial design. And... It's hard to say whether or not you have a firm grasp of that to, to figure out the probabilities. Um, and also you have to figure out too, like when's the probability of this being commercialized? And that's what COVID over, like I mentioned this in the last podcast where COVID kind of threw a wrench into everything where yeah. we had to delay trials or things like that. And we're still seeing that. We still see like procedures and trials being delayed because people have to quarantine or they have to pr- push off because a guy's got COVID or positive for COVID. Um, it's hard. It's hard. It's hard. It's a hard, hard, hard game. Um, that's why I always look at the bigger companies and see where they're going mm-hmm. and see where they can push the limits in terms of price distribution, operating leverage, their pipeline because they have that experience and all transfer. They know exactly what they're how they're dancing to, 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 you know, to the FDA's music. Yeah. Um, and the FDA like recently came out with a guidance saying like, look, like you guys in gene therapy, for example, have to start thinking about scaling up your manufacturing sooner, right? Like in your lab, right? Think about how you're when if you do get something with traction into phase three, how are you going to scale this? Yep. Right. And so the FDA is also getting a bit more ahead of the curve and, who are you going to trust in that environment? Most likely, most likely the larger companies. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we discussed this last podcast, but it's, it's worth repeating the, if you, if you want to truly appreciate uh, what strong barriers to entry look like, I don't think you can do better than some of these large biotechs like a Charles river or West pharmaceutical. I mean, there's probably somebody listening out there that has a business. that's like, better than that but just kind of you know yeah like the life science yeah Yeah, i mean like it's 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 hard to find a better example of of barriers to entry and just customer captivity yeah yeah i know it's 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 nearly impossible um and even if you were to try even if you were to try right like if you were to say hey i i just invented a new way to inject insulin a generic a generic insulin 
Like, let's say you came up with an invention. You're hiring West to manufacture the thing. They have a contract manufacturing division. The whole purpose of West's contract manufacturing division is so that clients with unique IP go to them, yeah. and then they manufacture on their behalf. But then that manufacturing, like part of their service, like where they, the, the margin take is, well, you got to do a leachable analysis. You got to do a integrity analysis. You have to do like a risk assessment analysis. You have all these tests for it, right? You don't want the thing breaking. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, it, 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 they, we're done. They're, they're, that's why there's very limited competition. Like why no one is trying to disrupt the way drug is delivered or, 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 or uh, distributed in a vial. Like it's, it, you're spending so much, so, so much money on developing a drug. Why risk it? You know, um, I think like one of the areas where new technology can come are like nanotechnologies where like little minuscule robots can deliver a drug or like, like we've mentioned with ClearPoint where it's a device, drug device combo. Um, but even there, uh, well, not, not drug device combo, but like, let's say even nanotechnology or wearable closed loop wearable technology. West has pretty much, like they know that, you know? Yeah. Uh, they got like 2000 patents. Um, and same with Charles Rivers, like they have the biggest database of models, right? Like they are known for quality, like big pharma is gonna go to them. And the what's good for their business is the more complex the biologic sphere becomes, because biologics is sort of, an, is a big wave here. And biologics is anything from cancer vaccines, mRNA, um, you know, gene therapy, cell therapy, biosimilars, anything where you're using cells, proteins, antibodies to create and deliver therapies, the preclinical design and the preclinical research becomes so much more important. And there's so much reporting that's required from, like I said, toxicology reports to mm -hmm. GLP reports. And it becomes very difficult to to automate that and that's why charles rivers has this sort of manufacturing business because like hey let's start to manufacture some of your biosimilars because we know how expensive it can be and we can just easily add on that service uh to test the test run a, on a pilot facility let's say um and i think people don't understand that the workflow with life science too is which is uh, maybe we could take a step back the way drugs are sort of developed is it starts in the lab and then companies typically go into some, uh, something called a pilot facility, which they scale up to. The pilot facility is kind of like a, it's kind of like a, a test run manufacturing facility. And these things can cost like, let's say $50 million to build, $75 million. Yeah. Right. So here's this 20,000 square foot facility that I'm going to experiment and test run and tinker my manu the manufacturing of my, of my key drugs. Uh, well, once you've nailed it down in sort of that pilot facility, then you file for uh, FDA CGMP. Mm -hmm. And once something is CGMP, you can't change it. Like it's locked in. Like you're going to say, this is how big the facility is. These are all the equipment that I have upstream and downstream. Um, and then here is all my error thresholds. Like if I have a chromatography column with an error threshold of a certain range, like it cannot be above that. If it is, it's got to get audited and it's got a record keeping. You can't change a CGMP facility, right? So, uh, and that's where the the moat comes in for like the Danaher's and the, you know, like I said, the Replogens and the Thermos, because they're mm -hmm. really pushing on the downstream.
And for people who don't know, upstream is creation of cells, like, you know, taking cells and creating in a bioreactor. The company with the best bioreactors is Sartorius, and they have good controllable lab, and they're Amber 250s, and they're really strong bioreactors and really focus on process development software and creating and like analyzing uh, those bioreactors to have an optimal output. And then there's the downstream. Downstream is like chromatography, filtration, uh, like almost like think of cleaning out uh, once the drugs are manufactured. Um, and the, the big money is there, right? Uh, and then from there goes the drug delivery. So because the, the downstream is in a CNGP, CGMP facility. Mm -hmm. uh, and you'll, you'll test run it in a pilot, but it's typically in a CGMP facility, right? So when you're producing a monoclonal antibody, which is you're, you're, you're built, um, cloning white blood cells to uh, create an antibody to create a therapy, let's say for cancer or for an immunotherapy, you're going to use protein A ligands to sort of clean the uh, high level, to clean out the um, that that process. Mm -hmm. And you're going to do it in chromatography columns and you're going to do it in like these, and they're going to flow through these different valves. Um, that's replicant. Yeah. And I mean, so, yeah. Everything, everything that you just said sounded extremely complex from like a logistical kind of supply chain management perspective. And it just makes me wonder the reason why some of these things are so durable and so and so lasting and captive is because what executive inside a, a, a business or inside a biotech company is going to say, hey, look, I know that the standard procedure is to use Charles River, to use Repligen, to use these things. And I know it's going to be super quick for us to do that. And I know yeah. the FDA already knows them. And it's going to be seamless. Everyone knows each other. The processes are in place. But there's this other company out there that says they'll do it for a lot cheaper. And I'm pretty sure that the FDA will work with them. And I'm pretty sure it won't take as long. Like the hurdle from a cost perspective and an innovation perspective to get someone to switch or to just cross the chasm to saying, oh, we'll, we'll only use what we know versus, hey, we're going to try to be some early adopter. Like that chasm has to be one of the widest in all of business. Yeah, I would say so. I would say so. You know, and that's why these things have such tremendous market share. Like if you go through all these companies, like West, 90 plus percent market share in biologics, Charles Rivers, 85% of all drugs, right? A hundred percent of all thorough drugs go through Charles mm -hmm. Rivers. Uh, Cytiva, which is Danaher, 75 of any FDA drug is manufactured with a Cytiva product in the CGP facility. Like they just have a tremendous amount of market share, right? The thermos, same thing. They control the lab, they control the pilots. Um, like the, the reason why they're such behemoths is because you're not going to risk as a, as a pharma company to, to use anything else, you know, mm -hmm. the incremental innovation. And, and they, like these guys are, are on innovation, like, like West, you know, there's new drug delivery methods that come out. West is like 2000 patents, right? ranging from, you know, I, the latest patent that I saw was um, almost like a, like a piston syringe. Think of like a nail gun, like boom. Uh, into your <laughs> and, and they may never <laughs> use it, but they have it, right? Um, or or closed loop wearable. Imagine a device like sort of implanted in your skin, and every four hours it kind of just delivers it slowly, slowly. Or nanotechnology, like they're going to be, they're going to have that. that whatever they come up with, you know, it's more of a risk mitigation factor. I'm going to go still to to West to to, you know, manufacture this. 
right, mm-hmm. and do all these studies. Or I'm still going to go to Charles Rivers to do all these studies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think where the uniqueness is, if you have unique devices, that's where you can have new companies come out, like a, you know, like a Shockwave Medical with their heart device, uh, yeah. or, you know, like I said, like a Clearpoint Neuro, where it's a very unique process. I mean, it's, the process has been in existence for 30 years, stereotactic surgeries. It's just, uh, they're just taking us one step up with the improvement on the drug delivery side using convection-enhanced delivery, which is for a pump, and they will be coming out with a closed-loop system. But, like, the transportation of the drug into the pump is a West vial, right? Yeah. Um, and then there's the study of the administration, like, how far did you have to go into the brain? How far did the drug actually spread across the kudamin? You know, how did the patient react three, six, four, three, six months away? How how is the patient reacting five years away? Right. The, those are services that that or you know toxicology reports. Those are services that Clearpoint does. That's more where companies can differentiate themselves in terms of uh, you know like in, in terms of like innovation. Where a what's the regulatory capture that I can have? Right. Mm-hmm. And how can I turn this innovative thing? And it's not not even have to be tremendously innovative like. Uh, stereotactic equipment is not has not it, it's 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 not as sexy as people think it is. Um, how how can I turn this into something that's more sticky? So CRO services, translational services, GLP services. That's where you can get more of a moat. Mm-hmm. Um, so to speak. And it makes me it makes me wonder this this kind of next question, and it's still kind of convoluted in my mind. But we like let's say that we know. If we if if we think about it as like A players, B players, and C players, right? The A players, we know what they look like. The Repligens, the Wests, the um, you know, all those, you know, the lilies and stuff. Like we know what quote unquote like A game looks like in this business, uh, in this industry. The B players we don't really, you know, kind of care about here for the sake of the discussion. But what I'm focused on is like what what parts of the industry do you think have the most C players? And then another way of saying that is, is, is what, what, what parts of this biotech space, this life sciences space could have the most cracks in the armor for new entrants to come in and disrupt and take market share, cut pricing. Like, where do you think within that C player range would disruption happen um, with the highest probability? That's tough. Um, I think like, I think outside the top eight players, the question is more, uh, how can the C players, let's say, mm-hmm. you know, let's say they have a particular, well, first of all, what kind of, what kind of market share do they have in their particular vertical? But more importantly, what's the, the question one should always ask is what's to stop thermo from going downstream into that area, right? Like if you look at right. Waters or Perkin Elmer, right? Like they're good companies, well managed, but you'd rather just own thermo, let's say, you know? Because uh, they have all the tools, uh, they're, they're known tools, and a lot of those waters perk in are more like lab focused. Uh, if I look, if I look like Metler Toledo, which is another great company, but they have very strong market share in, in, in scales, right, weighing systems, uh, and other kinds of disposables. Um, but that, the question is more like, where can the big players go downstream, and why would they go downstream, and how you know would they waste their time going downstream? Yeah. You know, like as an investor, I don't need to own like Waters, Perkin Elmer, and like all these other tools when I, you know, thermal's good enough, right? Or, yeah. and that's sort of like how I would frame it. Um, 
I guess like the, 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 it's more about there's these three different areas. You have like upstream, which is making cells, and then there's the downstream, which is and this is in bioprocessing, which is filtration and harvesting of a, of of these um, you know unique uh, therapies. Um, and then there's also the in the lab, like who controls the lab, who has a market share in the lab, who's got market share in the pilot facility, and then who's got market share in the research, and then who's got market share in the delivery. Mm-hmm. And if you go, and then there's all the CDMOs as well. Um, then there's a lot of CDMOs, and all the, the CDMOs do a lot of different things, right? Um, it's more like, okay, who has prepared themselves the best for uh, these, the, the biologics wave that's about to hit, right? They all have to a degree, but which ones have um, allocated the resources more effectively? Um, mm-hmm. to, to that to those worlds. So, like, if I look at the CDMOs, my favorite is Lanza, just because they're the most advanced. They've been pre- pre- prepping for cell and gene therapy for years. They've been preparing uh, personalized medicines for years. They have. They're in Switzerland. They're they're also um, like very. They invest a, a lot in new tech. You know, I, I was on a call with them. I remember when they were telling me how they they have these AR facility, like AR headsets where someone can sort of test run, you know, their, their manufacturing in their lab. Like it's wow. really cool next gen stuff. Like that to, to me is a better business than some other CDMOs where they're just manufacturing Tylenol or cough syrup or things that are lower margin. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the, 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 the CDMO business is like a construction business where it's just a bid. Like I'm bidding to a drug company that I can make it for lower, for cheaper. And so the margins are smaller. And so it's a volume-based business. And where the incremental margin that you can capture is in your how low can you keep your CapEx, number one, and that can become through new technologies. And can I have a little bit of price if it's it's a complex drug, right? Or a complex therapeutic or it's, uh, you know, biologics. So, and there's a lot, like Samsung Biologics is good. Like they're really good too. Um, Fujifilm is, is is okay. Uh, I think Lonza is like the gold standard uh, in my view. I've never heard of that Lon Lonza. So the yeah. ticker symbol for those playing at home is L O N N on the yeah. Switch they also have game. other like equipment businesses that they like little divisions, but the mm-hmm. bread and butter is sort of like CDMO. Yeah, yeah. Lonza's been a monster. Um, yeah, I mean, last year they did, and again, last year was obviously a huge asterisk, but. Five and a half billion in revenue, three billion in net profit. <laughs> that is, yeah. There, there's so there's them. There's Eurofins. There's Catalans, which is on the Nasdaq. I think it's on Nasdaq. CTLT. They mm-hmm. went off a cliff recently. Um, but yeah, so it, I, the ones with the best, I would say, management teams. The ones with the that I like the the most in terms of the CDMOs are the, the lawns of Samsung are probably one and two for me. Mm-hmm. Um, Eurofence is good on the more lower end, like um, like for smaller players. Uh, but yeah, those are the top two for me. You mentioned management teams, and it. I think biotech life sciences companies are fascinating when you view them in the light of management teams because the technology is so challenging and complex that what people normally look for in say like a CEO or a CFO 
they might not find in a biotech company or like what is quote unquote a good operator in a biotech company might be totally different than say like your regular manufacturer or a software business. And, and then, you know, all these, all these health companies usually have some sort of CMO, a chief medical officer, or a CHO mm -hmm. chief health officer. So how do you go about valuing or evaluating these management teams and, and kind of what, what criteria do you, do you look for as maybe some sort of high level, like green flag or red flag type, mm -hmm. uh, type checklist? Um, I mean, any of the big life science companies that are in like the major indexes, they're going to have decent management, like quality management. You know, people like Mark Casper at Thermo or uh, management at Danaher, like just the famous ones. It's not so different than any other kind of business where you're looking for capital allocation. Like that's really what you're trusting them to do, right? Because they have a sort of, the, well, the funny thing about is the life science business to a degree is, A, it's, an, it's, an, it's the ultimate Pareto distribution. B is it's highly, highly, highly regulated. Um, and even if you look at some of the big pharma, you know, they have tremendous, I mean, they all have tremendous pricing power. So you start to see, okay, well, you know, who's investing, who's got a, the first thing to analyze is who's got a glimpse into the future, like what what's coming down the pipeline, how are you preparing the company for that? Second is not, and, and the reason I say that is not that it's for disruption purposes, but you you want the business to, be well prepared because of the mm -hmm. regulatory frameworks that come out of these things. And then the second is capital allocation. Like, are they buying back stock at the right prices? Are they doing M&A that's accretive in the right prices? Like, Replogen's done a lot of M&A, right? They started just selling protein A ligands, which helps, like, again, purify monoclonal antibodies. And they just started rolling up equipment manufacturers, right? And then Thermo just kind of came late to the party. Like, oh, wow, like, single-use bioprocessing equipment is probably a decent business. Right, and Tony Hunt came from Thermo for, to, to Replogen, right? That's another thing, like these guys kind of move around. Mm -hmm. So um, it's not so different than like, there's just, you evaluate the capital allocation. Um, and then also just evaluate the margin, um, the margin like trajectory, I would say, right? So if you look at, if you look at West, like management saying, hey, we're gonna do a hundred basis point of margin expansion every year. We're basically into perpetuity, and we're going to grow top line revenue seven to nine percent in perpetuity. I'm like, okay, well, you get that in a in a really bad environment, and you you've locked in a pretty good IRR for for twenty years, right? Yeah. Um, uh, and it, so I would say that it's not so different than any other kind of business, uh, where cap allocation is going to matter a lot. Um. And also just like, are they levering, like, you know, some of these companies like Metal Fluid, for example, they, they have a lot of leverage. They, they used to do, I, I haven't checked them in a while, but you know, some of them might lever up a lot and depend on pricing power, which is traditionally not, it's a good strategy for a lot of companies that have sort of like mission critical equipment, but sometimes they may overdo it. And mm -hmm. as you see, when you have in rising rate environments like we have now, you want to just evaluate just the capital allocation of the company and who's paying down the debt the most, who's divesting businesses and what are they investing into. And again, that, that that's probably the best way I could, I would evaluate the manager team. So one of the, uh, let's say themes of this discussion so far has been, uh, the bioprocessing industry or the opportunity. And you've mentioned it a few times here. Can you just give us an overview of, of of the opportunity in bioprocessing as you see it, and then um, if we if we can go through the value chain, where you think 
uh, and interesting investment opportunities exist, right? So if you think that this one part of the value chain is, is is super attractive and 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 these other parts for whatever reasons you know aren't as attractive like i would definitely want to know that and then and then if there's any sort of companies that are off the beaten path that maybe people aren't discussing that you think are doing really cool things within bioprocessing i'd i'd, I'd love to kind of you know dive dive into those a little bit deeper yeah like, so i can i'll just maybe describe what bioprocessing is so so bioprocessing involves using living cells to produce biologic drugs so that's like monoclonal antibodies, therapeutic proteins, vaccines, cells, gene therapies, DNA, like mRNA um, therapies. And it's divided into two sort of areas. There's upstream, which is sort of growing cells, you know, in a culture media, the growth of these cells in a bioreactor. And then there's the downstream, which is the harvesting, the purifying, the concentrating, the formulating, and then eventually the packaging and the delivery of the product, meeting with quality requirements. So like those are the two areas. Um, the mar so Sartorius has a, has a good market share in the upstream side. They might, I don't remember off the top of my head where their numbers are in terms of the downstream, but they're, they're, they're a large business that has tapped very well into the upstream bioprocessing replicas on the down, downstream. And the reason why these are important markets is because right now uh, monoclonal antibodies is the largest market within the biologics, the bioprocessing market. Uh, the total revenue for total sales of monoclonal antibodies by 2026 will hit, hit about half a trillion. So 520 billion or so. These are very, very, very large markets and they're growing fast. So monoclonal antibodies, which has been around for a while, is a market that's growing 10% a year, right? So if you if you figure, like small molecules are, you know, it can be a pill, but uh, anything with that is delivered by syringe is gonna be biologic. And if you're expecting half a trillion, you know, in by 2026, I mean, these are very, very significant numbers and uh, why there's sort of a race to, to double down on them. Um, the second sort of level is cell and gene therapy. Uh, there, you know, there's, I think, there's only a handful of approved gene therapy drugs or, th or therapies. Um, cell therapy is sort of the next wave, which is, you know, stem cell implantation, things like that. Um, and then there's uh, vaccines, like cancer vaccines. That's sort of uh, the next, uh, the, I guess, is the third level of like the major growth opportunity in some of these companies. So the reason why they're important is because they're very complex to develop, um, and they're very they become very expensive drugs, very expensive drugs. And because of the price, the complexity, the cost, the regulation, uh, it becomes um, a significant opportunity for the life science companies to capture as much market share as possible because there's such unique uh is there such unique therapies you're, you're going from a world where you're no longer treating a symptom you're changing someone's gene or you're changing someone's uh makeup of, of who they are right like huntington's gene therapy you are you are literally changing one single gene for the rest of that person's life That's and so that that's where the that's why there's this massive race to for all the life science companies like how do we prepare for all this right mm -hmm. covid gave you a preview of what these businesses will look like 
right? So if you look at West and uh, the delivery side of Repligen, like the return on equity and the margins and the return on invested capital and the return on assets, that just that's the preview of what's coming. Like in five years or ten years, let's say seventy to eighty percent of revenue for Repligen and West, Danner, and all these companies that are either on the upstream or downstream, particularly on the downstream, will be biologic based, mm -hmm. right? And they will be approved. And that's another kicker, right? Where Repligen is like thirty-five percent of the of the equipment that they sell is for approved drugs. Right, that's going to dramatically increase over the next few years. Only forty percent of rep uh, West revenue right now is is uh, biologics. Well, what happens when you turn that to eighty, right? And margin gross margins are 50 percent, let's say, and their EBITDA margin is thirty five, right? Yeah. Then you have like a visa, basically, yeah. right? Like yeah, that, you do. So because and the great thing about West is there's the the gross margin flows through really really well into the EBITDA margins. Repligen less, a little less so, but because of they have more inventory issues in the balance sheet. But even then you're talking about 60% gross margin, 30% EBIT margins. Right. Right. Whereas West would be like, you know, 47% gross margin, 30%, 35%, 32%, you know, margins. And so what do you, what do you put a multiple on that? Or what kind of multiple do you put on that for something that's it, yeah. it's a unique market? It's a unique opportunity, and it's the, the the price of the drugs are really high, you know. I, and that's 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 what a lot of people struggle with. Is like I don't really know what the multiple should be. Yeah, is it like forty right. times earnings? I mean, who knows? It, it sounds yeah, boring, I don't know. But... Like, it's yeah, yeah. It's like if you take if you take something like a Visa, where it's got like eighty percent gross margin. I don't know what the net profit margin is. I think it's like forty percent, something ridiculous, right? Yeah. But let's say you apply. Let's let's say. You, it's not maybe not that crazy in terms of margin profile, but let's say you do have a margin profile that's substantially better than what it is today. And you have a line of sight in terms of growth for the next, I don't know, 25 years, right? Uh, I don't know what the problem should be. <laughs> right? And, and, um, and, and then you add on top of the fact that there's like no, there's very little competition because they're very complex things. Right, they're all FDA regulated. Um, the FDA is literally putting out guidance every year on manufacturing for cell and gene therapies and biologics, and like you know, the more guidance for software in terms of CGMP facilities. Like, what? How should we? If there's an error in a cell and gene therapy manufacturing facility, how do we? How do we minimize all those errors? Because mm -hmm. these are really expensive to make. Um, it's still kind of new to that degree. So uh, that's where you can see why, like Danaher, right? They'll sell out their entire environmental business to like, screw this. I'm doubling down on Sativa. And that's yeah. what they're going to do, right? Um, and so it's just a very unique opportunity, I think, um, given those dynamics and given just the amount of like a revenue that's coming, like the, the markets are massive for these things. So Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm on, so I'm on ticker right now. And just, just for kind of kicks and giggles, I'm looking at, Charles River, uh, Lilly, Repligen, and then West Pharmaceuticals. And just over the last five years, the uh, average free cash flow multiple is, is pretty interesting. So Charles River is you know, 25 and a half. West is 56 over the last five years. Repligen, 111 times. And Eli Lilly, 25 and a half. So, I mean, you could probably 
take a take a guess and take a stab at say if if what you're saying is true about the future of these businesses 25 times free cash flow as just kind of a a, a run rate floor for what these things should trade at um and then and then just kind of go from there and and then again it's interesting like a charles river right like it's it's average over the last five years is 25 and a half and today it trades at 24 times mm-hmm. which people would say like oh that's that's pretty expensive cash flow but you could you could make the argument that there's a wee bit of multiple expansion embedded in the price today based on where you think you know these businesses should trade given the quality of the business yeah and and also just you just got to have an understanding of also how these things work like you know so people like how do you deliver gene therapy well there's kind of two ways to do it there's in vivo and ex vivo we haven't even talked about ex vivo right so so in vivo is i'm injecting an a an antiviral aav they call it capside plasmid which again is is that this is an upstream issue. You create a virus to then deliver a the actual therapy into the body. I'm giving you a virus. Let's say, and I've seen one where they deliver a herpes virus. So they're using the herpes virus they're in, as as the transportation. Think of it like the school bus, and in the school bus is the therapy, and the therapy thing and gets released, and then you know effectively um, helps the patient. But then there's ex vivo. Ex vivo is I'm taking cells out of a human. I'm like changing up the makeup and putting it back into the human being, right? So Maxite is a small cap that that does that. They have used a unique process called electropolation. They have 130 patents to it. Uh, other players like Thermo do have electropolation, but not as uh, not as good as Maxites, right? So there is a small cap, but you say, oh, holy cow, like. They're so good that they have a something called their part of their business models an SPL, which is a strategic uh, pipeline. Basically, take a royalty on milestones. So if you have an approved drug, you take a royalty on the drug, because they fe- they feel their process is so vital to the delivery and the creation of that therapy for a human. Yeah, electropolation is effectively equipment where you can like put an electric shock in the cell, change the makeup of the cell, which allows it for easier delivery. I'm using a very high level, very, very yeah. high level, like, <laughs> like approach this, it's but so, brain stuff. so, so there's, there's in vivo and then there's ex vivo. Like what happens there? What are the new innovations that are coming out there? Who's going to have the market capture there? It's not going to just mm-hmm. be max site. There's going to be also other processes in terms of like the downstream, the upstream, the research regarding that, because there's all these, this ecosystem is becoming very, 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 very complex. And I don't mm. have all the answers to it. I'm, I'm sort of just giving a high level overview of what's coming down this pipeline. Yeah. And we, we forget like, you know, yeah, they, they do effectively trade. And then there's these other service providers. You have Equivia, which is sort of other services, assessments, consulting, you have Vantor, which is all the other medical equipment. You know, you have this ecosystem of like Meravi Technologies, which also does help for cell line production and things like that. There's all these other companies that are in that ecosystem. And, you know, I often get the question, you know, sh- if I was to get a basket, right, what, what should I do? Yeah, I always, my, the, it's hard for me to say anything, whether like, look, you got research, you got upstream, you got downstream, you got delivery, right? And within those, you may have other subsectors, which you might want to be interested in doing that. And then you have maybe manufacturing, let's see the CDMOs. But here's my favorite, right? And um, it, the ecosystem becomes, it's going to get more complex over time. And I don't, I think it's hard to just talk about this is the kind of multiple it deserves based on mm-hmm. historical or this is the kind of multiple it deserves based on a particular peer when that peer might have might fit in a different 
in a different uh, workflow within the sort of um, CGT or biologic bucket. It may have different dynamics in terms of pricing power within that bucket. It may have different market share. Um, and also you have to think about like, the, the, the life science sector is going through this major shift that, that we have never seen before, right? Right. Uh, and so I, I don't know what a proper multiple is, but you can sort of figure out how big these businesses can get based on, you know, the opportunity that's out there. So. Yeah, I mean, th I mean, this one one thing I would it would it would be a fun exercise to create like this huge map of the biologic space, um, like almost like a value chain primer, but it's but it's all visual. It's like, hey, here's every part of the value chain, and then broken down, here's every company inside this value chain that's publicly traded that you know might might be interesting, because it is it is extremely complex. Um, and 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 the complexity is is probably part of the reason why companies like Lilly, Nova Nordisk, they receive so much inflows into their stock because people are like, look, this thing is so complex. Let's just buy the best of the best and hope that they figure out what to do. Yeah. So if you take a thermo, the thing with thermo is they're going to have their tentacles into almost all the value chain. Yeah. Like they're going to be in the tools. They're going. They are. They're they're pushing their CDMO with Pantheon. They're going to, you know, have, they're going to go into different processes. Like they're even trying to, you know, compete on the CRO level. Like they want to be legal to stop for across the board. Uh, and so for a lot of, for a lot of investors, like that's good enough. That fills my bucket, right? Or Danaher, that fills my, my, you know, my, my basket. Um, whereas some of the other companies like a Mettler Toledo, or you took like a, like a Waters or Perkin Elmer or Marvi or, you know, even 3M has a, is a life science division. Um, you know, they do such different things and the tools or diagnostics um, that it just, you have to have a particular view on that, on that segment. Mm -hmm. And look, at the end of the day, these things are all highly correlated. Like, do you really need multiple factor? Do you need multiple exposure of the same factor uh, as an investor? Like that's, if I put my investor hat on, it's like, I don't need to have five different things that kind of move the same way. Exactly. Uh, so what is sort of like the, who are, who is best positioned for that? Mm -hmm. Right. Like biotechnism or biomed, there's just so many of these things. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Cause that's what got a lot of people screwed with the, with the technology SaaS space where they all made one factor bet and yeah. they filled their portfolio with quote unquote diversified stocks, but, it was really just one factor bet. And so you you probably don't want to make the same mistake in something way more complex that is, you know, biologics and bioprocessing. Yeah. And like if you overlay a thermo chart with Charles Rivers with the West and you just sort of compare those stocks, they're all moving the same. Mm -hmm. They're all kind of just, you know, they're in the same direction. They're highly correlated investments, you know. Um, even if you were to take some of the small caps, like go overlay Replogen with Clearpoint Arrow. I did this the other day. And I'm like, oh my God, it's like incredibly correlated, right? And it's at the end of the day, these are all just, they're all the same CGT play. It's more, the, I guess the thing that I always go after is what, where, where do I see companies A with pricing power that are allocating capital the best and that are part of the markets that are going to be the biggest and where the most amount of money is going to go through.
Yeah. Right. Like I'm not, so like for me, I'm less interested in CDMOs than I am for the bioprocessors. Right. I'm not as interested in, you know, um, unique equipment pipettes or things like that in the lab. I'm more interested in, um, the delivery of the drugs. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. You mentioned the price correlation between some of these stocks and it made me, made me think. So again, if I look at, we'll call it uh, West Pharmaceuticals, Charles River, Clearpoint, and uh, Eli Lilly. Clearpoint down 23% over the last year, Charles River down almost 40%, and then West down 44% over the last year. The one stock that bucks this trend, and it's and again, I, it's it's probably one of the strongest relative strength stocks in the market is Lilly. Like Lilly is up almost 51% over the last year, and it's probably one of the few health technology biotech stocks that has positive gains on the year let alone you know 50 plus um so much has changed about the lily thesis since we last had our life sciences deep dive and again you know full disclosure we own lily so we're super you know i wouldn't say super biased but we're biased right we want to see lily advance higher and higher and never never retrace but what specifically have you seen within Lilly, whether it's the development of, you know, terzepatide and, and, and the diabetes slash weight loss drug, um, them buying some, some, some smaller players, like how much has their future changed and their outlook changed based on what's happened over the last year? Yeah. So, so I'll remove, so the picks and shovels will move the same pharma won't typically because of the patents. Mm-hmm. Um, so Lilly is a great example of a company that What's it done in the last five years? Like four bagger or something like that? Let me check. Um, last five years, uh, Lily has uh, it's three hundred thirty-two percent. So yeah, so the four and a, so let's say let's, let's call it four and a half bags. Um, you know, there's a great example of a large cap, well-known pharma that's given you that five bagger as you as we speak, right? You know, I think it pays a dividend too, right? It's not inconceivable that it will hit a trillion market cap. It's just, it's, it's not um, inconceivable that you might have. There's a world where, you know, you fast forward 10 years, uh, maybe not even that far, but the, the, the future mega caps are these pharma companies, right? And they're all on the 500 to 2 trillion mark because of the pricing of a lot of these drugs. And Lily's got the, the, the biggest drug in human history with Munjaro, right? Mm-hmm. It's like literally $1,100 like drug that, you know, is in prick every, I don't know what the frequency is, but I think it's a pretty high frequency. And if you, if you just figure do the math, like you're talking <laughs> about pretty a pretty, silly. pretty big business, right? Yeah. Um, it, I think, I think Lily's a little, uh, expensive in a sense that like they're giving a really big multiple on Munjaro and deserves it. Don't get me wrong. Um, and likely will probably go higher as we're talking, <laughs> but, <laughs> but like, yeah, like there's an example of, you know, uh, here's and, and Lily for a long time did nothing. Right. And that's sort of where the patience comes in and investing. If you can figure out the pipeline early enough and you can figure out, um, you know, where they're going to, invest and where the patent cliffs are and what the market is and mm-hmm. companies that have navigated the FDA well, you can have a, a, a lily, right? Yeah. And so you figure out what's the next lily. That's the question that's more interesting. 
right in terms of like where 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 are the companies that are sort of languishing now that is a lot in big pharma that do have blockbuster potential right, right? and you got to think of these big pharma like the top seven let's say they're almost like musical chair businesses where like they'll go through these periods of these tremendous patent cliffs and then they'll just turn on a switch and then they do another five bag in like 10 years and then just languish for another five and then you know they're divesting things they're like what is Lily going to do with all the cash they're going to make from Moonjaro? Right. So they're probably yep. going to invest in a lot of gene therapy. So I know they have been acquiring a gene therapy company recently. I think it's Acupost. I don't remember the name, um, but like they're going to probably invest in those areas, cell therapy, biologics, things like that. Um, and so like the same, what, 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 what is the next elite? AstraZeneca has the blockbuster potential, right? Like in terms of if you were to figure out late stage plus market plus price, plus yes. likelihood of approval. Novartis is there. Novartis is a bit more hair because of Sandoz. Sandoz is their generics business, which they're going to have to sell. Well, that's going to be 20 billion in cash for them, let's say. They're going to in they're just going to spend it typically on uh, all their programs. Um, and potentially buy on tech, right? Buy on tech is just more risky because it has less uh, late stage stuff. It's sort of, it just got incredible amount of, um, I don't want to say spray and pray. That's not the right terminology, but it's like, it's like 19 programs, right? Yeah. So yeah. So it's conceivable Lily can hit, you know, pretty large market uh, cap. And I, I think, I think you might get a shot at some of these companies hitting really large market caps. Yeah. You know, like, so. I mean, they would have to, right? Cause they're trading it. I mean, Lily right now, as of 12-2, uh, looking at ticker here, is 47 times free cash flow. So, yeah. I mean, that it's you pricey. are, yeah, that is, that's pricey, even for, even for, you know, the kind of picks and shovels, the drug space. I mean, if I look at, if I look again at, at kind of Lily's last five years, what that multiple is, it's 25 times. So, um you know this this terzepatide thing is going to have to really hit for for a lot of for a lot of that value to to actually manifest in the future. Mm -hmm. But uh, but no, I mean Peter, this has been a sweet conversation. I mean this 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 part two deep dive. Um, I learned I learned a lot, and I learned a lot more than I did in the first round, just because I think I think what you did well in 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 part one was was lay the foundation for a lot of noobs like myself um that didn't necessarily know the space as well and now i can i can kind of ingest what you're saying and run it through a mind that knows a little bit more so i can derive a little bit more insights and 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 kind of take a little bit more from the conversation so um i do have a couple questions from twitter that i want to roll through you real quick sure um and a lot of them we actually already discussed, which is which is great. So there was one from, let's see, from Qui Bono Capital uh, at C U I B O N O Capital. He asks, I mean, it's kind of like a run-on sentence question, but intersection of legacy CROs and upstart API companies using new tools to enable orphan approvals of platform technologies. What are those tools and who are the companies providing them? I don't really know what a lot of that means. So if you could translate that <laughs> and, then, and then provide the answer. I like to, I like to know what APIs, what he, what he refers to APIs. Um, I, I just in terms of the legacy CROs, um, 
what like the what the transition that's going on there is they're they're getting they're 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 becoming more embedded earlier on in the preclinical design because what's happened recently with some of these um, gene therapy companies is it's not necessarily that their science has been flawed it's just that they haven't been able to meet clinical design parameters and so you're going so in terms of the services and software i mean charles rivers has very innovative software solutions there's companies that do like certera cert does clinical uh biosimulation like they, they simulate um uh, like human trials but the, the but the fda requires uh animal testing uh by law as a precursor to preclinical design and they require that the 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 database uh and the and the like the data for what that looks like. So Charles Rivers has the largest database of any CRO in the world, right? They have data of a mouse genetic or non-human primate genetic makeup for, you know, cancer, for, you know, gene editing, for device implantation, for, for everything out of the sun. And there's just a lot of trust there and quality. I think that's another thing that, that sort of is interesting about the CRO space where quality integrity matter a lot because of the mistakes that can happen on a clinical design and which is what the reason why a lot of technologies haven't really been able to break through is a charles rivers could kind of does a lot of that as part of their services but also it because of glp because of the design parameters that has sort of bitten some companies in the butt and you add the quality and integrity it's really hard for those companies to switch out yeah. of their zero and that's kind of that's my that's just, i think that's why uh thermo has been trying to push the zero business a bit more um because they know they can, if they can get them at the preclinical uh the thermo becomes like the de facto value chain for certain biotech across the spectrum like end to end right um and, and you'll see that also with medpace too like medpace has done incredibly well uh, they're a bit more smaller biotech focused, um, but you'll start to see, uh, like again, CRO spaces. It's gonna, it's a Pareto distribution, right? It's you got very few that control the market, and that's for reasons that are regulatory, that are based on trust, and it's very, they're very hard to disrupt because they have their fingers on the pulse, and they can, they're easily able to acquire a lot of these things to develop it in house or partner with them. Mm -hmm. um, so. Yeah, I mean, I'm a I'm a huge fan of MedPace, obviously, but again, that's yeah. a little bit of bias because I'm long. Um, but no, I like I mean that that to me the CRO space is just is so is so attractive um, and interesting, and and it almost it almost kind of makes me wonder. Uh, just just this question I had: if someone's a complete, uh, you know, green analyst to this space, or someone that has never invested in a life sciences, biotech, bio, you know, biologics business before. Is there an industry that you would recommend them read? Let's say you know the top three companies in that space, and like I wonder if the CRO space is 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 a is a good place to start. Like if you read MedPace's annual report, you read um, you know you read CERT's annual report, or you read CRL's annual report, and you get you know kind of an idea of okay, at least I, you know I understand the CRO space, and the CRO is a great launching point to help me understand the rest of the space or to try to help me understand the rest of the space. Yeah, I think that's probably like, so I, I would start with CROs because 
it gives you a glimpse of, t of two things. It gives you a glimpse of the lab and it gives you a glimpse of trial designs, mm -hmm. right? And so just if you didn't know anything about the science, scientific space, right, you get a glimpse of like, okay, these are the FDA regulations. There's, there's uh, the GLP, which is good laboratory practice. And all all the disclosures regarding animal health from sex, age, weight, substrate, supplier of the animal, et cetera, part of the preclinical study. Then you have trial design, right? All this can be is 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 shown in like Charles Rivers 10Ks, annual reports, different kinds of research. <clears throat> and then that can give you a glimpse of like, okay, this is how these things are designed. This is this is the value process of how drugs are kind of researched and assessed, right? And then if you go through all the different services, you you start to figure out pretty quickly that like a CRO like Charles Rivers, let's say, has a pretty wide range of services. And this is a really mm -hmm. complex area, right? And then from there, maybe you can then say, okay, well, what's, what's after the lab, right? Or what's after the assessing the efficacy of this particular drug? Well, then it's, then you can get into the manufacturing, right? Yep. And then from there, you can get into delivery. Uh, so I think, I think that's probably a good way to, to understand that. And, 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 and there's things that an investor would understand, like they understand intangible assets they understand switching costs they understand um you know like regulatory capture these are things that are really interesting to know um and look like the other thing too is i mean Taleb talks about this the lindy effect right like charles Rivers has been around since the 30s right like these are very long these are old businesses right yeah. they haven't been disrupted because there's this if you understand the workflow it's you start to realize like oh my goodness like i can't it's very difficult to sort of disrupt some of these things right and then you add in the factor of just this in, in this this sort of quality um trust they have in the market and if you're going to go produce if we so we know the life science sector is about to get it far more complicated than it was the last 40 years yeah, and if we know that drugs are now going to be in the half a million, two hundred thousand, three hundred thousand, you know, three point five million dollar range, you can't make mistakes, right? In your in your development, in your in your in your design, mm -hmm. so that creates a bigger moat for these companies and changes how they're viewed. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Well, Peter, this has been an awesome discussion. Thanks again so much for doing this part two deep dive. We before we hit record, uh, you 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 mentioned that now is a pretty good time to 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 do this, where people are taking time away from markets. It's the holiday season, not too much going on, and probably a uh, a great fireside chat where you know you're just chilling on a Saturday morning and you want to learn more about a space. I I I think this will be a great conduit for 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 those types of people. So thanks so much again for coming on um for people that want to learn more where can they find you i know you're on twitter you've got a website uh make sure to plug those for those that want to learn more yeah we'll, we'll uh you could you could check our twitter out at, at logos underscore lp we have a blog too if people want to sign up uh it's on the twitter link um yeah and I, and uh you know i'm <clears throat> i have people reach out all the time so happy to happy to answer any questions people might have uh on twitter and then I'm going to ask you again the last question that I ask every guest. I think this is going to be your third attempt at this. So I don't even know the other two answers, to be honest with you. I don't I remember gonna, either. <laughs> I, should have, I should have listened to the episodes before this. But if you could have dinner with one person from the past or the present, who would it be and why? Um, that's a good question. 
I should be more prepared for these questions. I always <laughs> think about them. Um, I don't know. I would probably do with like Aristotle. Yeah. I think, uh, or Socrates. I'd love to just to develop that kind of wisdom and knowledge that in that era of humanities, I find very fascinating. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, or like an Isaac Newton, you know, I would love to figure out, uh, just, just wrap my head around, uh, how they think about things generally and how they got the, the worldview that they got. So I think that's, that's probably the conversation that I want to have, uh, who, ha who would I want to have it with? Yeah, that, that would be fantastic. Just the ability to, to ask them how they, how they've learned to ask such great questions. Yeah. Like, and, and like what kind of perspective led, like if you take Isaac Newton, right? Like he discovered or invented calculus at like 19, like what, yeah. what life, uh, perspective led you to have sort of, um, you know, those kinds of, in, th that kind of inquisitive mind. Yeah. yeah. He's probably just a genius prodigy, but I'd love to just get a understanding of their perspective on, uh, on things. It's almost impossible to wrap your head around the fact that someone created something like calculus. Cause you just think like calculus is just kind of this, you know, omnipotent thing it's always existed because uh, <laughs> we've always known right. it's always existed and it's just wild that someone had to had to create that and i think i think the closest thing for me to wrap my head around that is when people create new like programming languages right so so many right. apps yeah. and so many companies are created using python but you realize like oh like someone created python like someone created the programming language that now is responsible for trillions of dollars in value uh, economically and 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 you know societally um and it's just it's mind-blowing when you start to backtrack the you know the genealogies of these things mm -hmm. no it's totally wild that's that's a whole another podcast <laughs> conversation yeah, yeah. where i'm sure i'm sure we could go into it but uh peter thanks so much man this has been awesome uh happy holidays to you and your family and and, and best of luck investing the rest of the year for sure same to you this episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional-level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R dot com forward slash hive.